Hello, Weird Studies listeners. This is J.F. Martell. I hope you're enjoying your summer. We in the Martell Halfordy household are making the best of what's left of it. Last night, Leslie and I took our daughters to the Port Elmsley Drive-In Theater, one of the last of its kind in Ontario. Now, there's lots to say, both about the films we saw and, especially, the magical, emanationist, downright neoplatonic mise en abîme that is the drive-in experience. That'll have to wait for another time. If Weird Studies is popping up on your feed today, it's to bring you a bonus episode originally offered to our Patreon members back in April of this year. We like to release some of these audio extras once in a while to give the wider public a sense of what's going on behind the Weird Studies paywall. I'm also keen to let you know that my upcoming NeuroLearning course is now open for registration at NeuroLearning.com. That's N-U-R-A Learning.com. Though if you're a Weird Studies patron, you'll want to enroll using the discount link provided on our Patreon. I'm very excited about this course. As I mentioned in the introduction to episode 152, I'm calling it Art in the Age of Artificial Intelligence. Last week, I tacked on the subtitle, Escapes from the Mechanical Dollhouse, without intending the obvious reference to the Barbie movie that headlined last night's double bill, a happy accident if there ever was one. The course is an attempt to think through some of the philosophical, psychological, political, and, of course, artistic implications of the AI moment, some early tremors of which I personally felt as far back as 1983 as I sat, interestingly enough, in the back of my mother's snot-green Pontiac Sunbird at the Britannia Drive-In in Ottawa, watching a supercomputer take over the world in Richard Lester's Superman 3. Being six years old at the time, I didn't really understand what was going on in that movie, nor can I claim to fully understand what is going on in reality today. I don't think anyone can at this nascent stage. But as Gilles Deleuze said, true thought begins, quote, at the frontiers of our knowledge, at the border which separates our knowledge from our ignorance and transforms the one into the other, end quote. The ubiquity of large language models presents us with a challenge. It would be a mistake, I think, to ignore the challenge until all the facts are in since facts and phantasms are already taking us on a merry dance. While I didn't quite overlook the question of artificial intelligence in my book, Reclaiming Art in the Age of Artifice, seeing how AI plays into it requires a bit of hermeneutics on the reader's part. The argument there was that what we call art entered a crisis in the first half of the 20th century. The crisis became full-blown in the late Cold War era, when what Guy Debord called the society of the spectacle evolved into what I called spectral society, that is, society entirely centered on the deployment and control of images, phantasms, and narrative. This is how I put it back in 2015. Quote, the term spectral connotes both the idea of a spectrum, the array of light and color that marks the outward appearance of our hypermedia landscape, and the notion of ghosts, that is, of dead beings that believe they are alive. When luminous representations become so pervasive as to eclipse other, more direct sensations, we lose more than our sense of perspective. We begin to lose our sense of self. The prime living environment offered to us today consists almost entirely of coded spaces, designed objects, staged events, and interfaces conceived to elicit specific cognitive responses from us. The examples range from traffic lights, advertisements, and news propaganda to manufactured catchwords, pornography, and products designed in light of the latest neurological research for optimal user-friendliness. Left with little room for anything truly personal to determine our behavior, we let the spectral forces think for us, 
often with such coercive influence that only outmoded terms such as possession can accurately describe the effect. In an ironic twist, the very enlightenment that was expected to rid the world of ghosts, demons, irrationality, and superstition laid the groundwork for the production of a new phantasmagoria. The convergence of ubiquitous media, artificial intelligence, psychotropic drugs, electronic surveillance, and invasive marketing has thrown us into a fluctuant in-between realm of spectral luminosities and wandering spirits, of flickering images and disembodied voices. This, even as the old ghosts, real or imagined or both, continue to dance at the edge of our narrowed field of vision. End quote. Art in the age of artificial intelligence is not a course on technology, but on the spiritual ramifications of a technological process that has entered the imaginal field. I hope you'll consider joining me for this somewhat precarious descent into the depths. Victoria Nelson might speak of the sub-zeitgeist of the spectral age. The course includes lectures and group discussions. It starts on September 12th and runs for seven weeks. Neurolearning alumni and Weird Studies Patreon members get a discount on the price of admittance. Again, visit neurolearning.com or our Patreon site for details. Okay, on with today's bonus offering a sampling of the impromptu, largely improvised content with a capital C that third and fourth tier Weird Studies patrons get to hear on off weeks. This one ended up being about affectation. Enjoy the conversation, and we'll see you again when the flagship show returns on September 13th, 2023. Twitter's a joke, and it's always been a joke. But, it's more uh, fun when you treat it like a joke, I've realized. Yes. I, I no, used to true. take Twitter too seriously, so I never tweeted. I, actually, I still don't tweet, but I, I, had, I, did a f- I made a few joke tweets last week, and they've been quite successful, so I don't know. I don't know what that adds to my life, to use Twitter for, to, to joke around, but it just seems to confirm the sheer uselessness of the medium. But You were yep. saying before we started that you, you, you wouldn't mind just watching it explode and oh dis- yeah no disappear. i and yeah i am i've got a special bag of marshmallows i'm wait, waiting to toast in the fiery rubble of twitter <laughs> like uh, the like the uh the derelict at the end of hellraiser you're just gonna walk up to the steep <laughs> the, the, the the burning rack of twitter and you're gonna reach in and pull out a little magic box and then walk away into the distance <laughs> and the contents of that box uh yeah Elon Musk's soul. Yeah. <laughs> and I will use the puzzle box to torment um, the souls of the damned. Yeah. But instead of it being like Hellraiser, where you get dragged into, you solve the puzzle, you get dragged into an interdimensional realm uh, and where your body and soul are t- torn to pieces. Instead, you're just sucked into a boardroom the back rooms. Where Elon, where Elon Musk is already waiting for you to yeah. begin a meeting that will last for eternity. <laughs> yeah. Just spitballing, he says, as he begins. <laughs> Some ideas here. He's got a whiteboard out. Um, have you heard of the back rooms? I think we touched on this. On the I page. have. Yeah. The back rooms am, are basically- I'm into the back rooms. Okay. Yeah. An infinite corporate office is the yeah. matrix of, of reality. Am- Empty corporate offices in all in a kind of queasy yellowy color. Yeah. Uh, every now and then you will find 
an odd desk, perhaps with a non-working computer. Right. Sitting on it. Yeah. But otherwise just room after endless room that there's something about the back rooms as a horror concept that really speaks to me. Me too. And I think it was like a 16 year old boy that created the original footage. It's the Gen Z imaginary, which I love. I really love their sense of the weird. It's very, very sharp. Um, my daughter's jokes Explain. are just, they just seem, they just have a sense of the absurdity of things. Like, um, I mean, there some of their, some of the TikTok videos that Delphine shows me, it's like, man, I'd have to really spend a couple of hours dissecting this to get to the humor, which you somehow immediately detect in it. I know it's there. There's something funny in there, <laughs> but it's several layers deep. Um, I think the backrooms is great. So for people who don't know, the backrooms is a kind of, um, uh, what do you call it? A kind of uh, meme. Like, uh, like a viral a video viral, thingy. Yeah. Yeah. Which has spawned a, a kind of weird occult, occulture uh, among certain age groups, which is that- It's a hyperstition is it, what it is. Exactly. Preci- precisely. So the, the backrooms is the idea that behind the facade that is reality is a matrix of sort, a kind of like- um, a real reality consisting of a labyrinth of corporate of corridors and empty rooms that if you find yourself there you basically there's no there's one way out delphine told me the way out you have to find this one stair stairwell you have to climb a certain amount of steps and then jump off um so there's no doubt other ways out that have been devised but um and this is reality this is the real you know, it's, it reminds, what I love about it, it's got the, uh, um, an, the allure of corporate horror, which is a, an underused or underexplored um, subgenre of horror, which Ligotti really nails in his book, My Work Is Not Yet Done, which contains a few stories of corporate horror, where he basically just shamelessly um, wreaks vengeance on his real life co-workers, <laughs> vaguely disguised as fictional characters. Um, and uh, and I like that. I think that the corporate world is a kind of horror setting. You know, I would like to be present at the HR meeting where Thomas Ligotti is brought in because some of his co-workers are feeling a little uncomfortable about the fiction he keeps writing with very thinly disguised versions of them meeting various horrifying unimaginably dark ends. Yes, that's exactly what happened. He used to work for a big publisher, like a big corporate publisher in Detroit. And so, uh, and he, I think at some point he had enough and quit and moved to Florida, I believe. And then, um, uh, and that was, that was the end of his uh, publishing career, his editorial career. But uh, he has nothing good to say about that world. Uh, yeah, I just think it would be, like I said, would love to be a fly on the wall at that HR meeting. Just having Ligotti as a co-worker. Just, well, <laughs> yeah, the, the mind boggles. Well, you know him a little bit and I don't. So I don't. I, I actually, mean, I, have I have emails. a mental, yeah. I have a mental image. Of course, he's not, it's not very well known what he even looks like. I don't think he has photos of himself circulating or at least not very many of them. There's one or two. One of them them is Jean Cocteau and people were circulating it as as him for years. Oh, that's, (laughs) oh, that's really funny. But I imagine he probably 
would not attract anybody's attention if they if you if you met him on the street you wouldn't think that he there was anything in any way out of the way I, this is i found i have yeah. found often to be the case with problematic imaginations yeah highly problematic imaginations often are housed in very unprepossessing uh bodies i have that feeling am i using too. that word am i using that word correctly unprepossessing I feel I like, like there's too word. many, there's too many, uh, you've prefixes got, got for two, me to yeah. be sure that I have used it correctly. I like it. It's got two prefixes, but, or is it yeah, pre two prefixes? Prefaces. Prefaces. <laughs> I, I have no idea. I I'm, think you're I'm, right. I'm channeling George Will here. I think you're right. I think he, um, I, I gotta go get, I have to read you the part about that guy in the office who wears a bow tie. I got to read you that. Oh, have okay. You ever, I have, have to ever hear read this. You? Okay, just a second. I'll be right back. Yeah. Okay. So I'll just start here. So uh, this is in a story by Thomas Ligotti titled, I have a special plan for this world. Later that day, however, I heard the voices of some of my coworkers in conversation nearby the enclosure that surrounded my desk. This is the type of turn of phrase you find in Ligotti. Nearby an enclosure that surrounded... Um, it's perfectly insane what they're doing, whispered a woman whose voice I recognize as that of a, of a longtime employee and a highly productive manipulator of documents. <laughs> Others in this group more or less agreed with this woman's evaluation of the company's grandiose ambition of becoming a dominant force in the world marketplace. Finally, someone said... I'm thinking of giving my notice. For some time now, I've been regretting that I ever followed the company to this filthy city. The person who spoke these words was someone known around the office as the Bowtie Man, a name granted to him due to his pension for sporting this eponymous item of apparel on a daily basis. He seemed to enjoy the distinction he gained by wearing a wide variety of bow ties rather than ordinary straight ties or even no tie at all. Although there were possibly millions of men around the world who also wore bow ties as a signature of sartorial distinction, he was the only one in the Blaine Company offices to do so. This practice of his allowed him to express a mode of personal identity, however trivial and illusory, as if such a thing could be achieved merely by adorning oneself with a particular item of apparel, or even by displaying particular character traits such as a reserved manner or a high degree of intelligence all and any of which qualities were shared by millions and millions of persons past and present and would continue to be exhibited by millions and millions of persons in the future, making the effort to perpetrate a distinctive sense of an identity apart from other persons or creatures or even inanimate objects no more than a ludicrous charade. It was after I heard the bowtie man proclaim that he was, that he was of a mind to give his notice that I stepped away from... Oh, no, that's, that's where it ends. There's more among the Bowtie Man somewhere. I just love the I love the, the the kind of send up of this guy who is so obviously trying to stand out with the bow tie, and just no. There's a guy like that in every office. <laughs> like, okay, I'm gonna sit down on this because I find it an interesting topic. I thought we were gonna talk about corporate horror, but what I really want to talk about is affectations. Okay. Bow, sure. bow ties, for example. Well, we don't have to stick at that topic. This is the Patreon bonus episode. Anything can happen. But well, I am somewhat interested in the question of affectations and how 
you can kind of incorporate them into your life. Because I'm going to say, I've, I've, I've gone on record as uh, approving of pretension to some extent. If by pretense we mean, you know, pretending, I think that it is important, even for grown-ups, even for those of us uh, lashed to the mast of some horrible corporate or academic job, uh, to maintain a lively sense of possibility. And that lively sense of possibility can be embodied in a bow tie, or perhaps a nice tam, or, uh, shit, I don't know, smoking a pipe. And, boy, your face is a study right now. No, you no, don't have, uh, you don't have self-view on, do you? I'm listening very carefully to what you're saying. Sorry. Your face looked like it was actually starting to change shape under the f force of the banality of my utterances. <laughs> no, it was just as, deeply, I was pondering your words as they were coming to me. Well, I was thinking about a friend of mine who it is, in fact, a bow tie man. This is a fella who has been wearing bow ties. He teaches. He's at the university. And he's been wearing bow ties uh, since he was a graduate student. And... It works. It, he rocks it. I have never questioned his decision to wear bow ties. Um, and now that my friend is in middle, middle life, it's as if he's always worn the bow tie. And so everybody has to kind of give it up to him. Like he gets to wear a bow tie because from everybody's point of view, he's always worn the bow tie. I mean, those of us who've known him for a really long time perhaps can dimly remember sometime where he didn't wear a bow tie. But even then, the, the fallibility of memory, the passage of time, uh, the dynamics of the situation are such that really past a certain point with, let's face it, relatively unimportant points like, are you wearing a straight tie, no tie, or a bow tie? People don't remember exactly when you started wearing your bow tie. So for all intents and purposes, he's been wearing it forever. Yeah. The trick is how do you work new affectations into your, into your rotation? Right. I, I really feel the need for a few new affectations in my life. I feel like my old affectations have gotten a bit stale and it's time for some new ones. But the problem is that the first day you go into work and uh, let's say you're wearing a bolo tie, that's your thing. Uh, or, um... I don't know. Give me a, an example of an affectation that you might I've got want, one. want to bring off at I've work. I've got one and I can explain how it came to be because it wasn't always so. I have, I mean, some people would look at me and think that guy's full of affectation. Look, he's got long hair and a big ass beard. Um, but he I don't hosts a podcast. What a exactly. fucking asshole. A Who fucking are you to host a podcast dick. anyway? Um, I have the affectation of wearing only black. I wear no other color. All my clothes are black. If you look at my drawers, my closet, it's all black. All. Um, and this was a very conscious decision that I made while I was working in a semi-corporate job. I was working with, um, at the time, I, I was on long-term contract. I had to actually go in every day with a, a production company. So these people saw me go from wearing very colorful clothes to wearing only black. 
one day and they thought, oh, there's Jeff's wearing only black today. You notice that the first time and then the next day and the next day and the next day. And I didn't say anything. At some point, uh, uh, a coworker, she's great. Uh, she, she suddenly said, what the hell's going on with the black? And I had to basically tell her, I've made the decision that I'm only wearing black. And, um, and then I became a bit of, it became a joke. It was like a joke that I only wore black. It was funny. And I just had to live with that, being that ridiculous bow tie man for a while until finally people just got used to the fact that I only wore black. And now occasionally my daughters remark on it, but you have to, you have to take on the, the affectation has to start, as you were saying, in utter pretentiousness. Yes. Utter prete- shameless have, pretentiousness, affectation yes, to, in the worst. You have to pretend that this is yours. That yeah, this is yours it's by obviously right. You not just you. claim it. Yesterday, yeah. you were wearing a, like a Hawaiian shirt, you know? and here you are today. Um, now, the, the thing is that, however, this is the weird paradox of it. The reason I chose to wear only black wasn't. Uh, I I don't think was it wasn't an arbitrary affectation. It was a. A, a way for me to align two parts of my life, which were at odds. One part is that I hate clothes. I hate choosing clothes. I hate thinking about clothes. I hate buying clothes. So what I've done usually is I've left the clothes buying to my wife on Christmas, where she basically buys me the clothes I need. And that's my Christmas gift. Um, and, uh, but, but then, you know, um, it just, it seemed to simplify everything if I just wore one color. And I, for a while I was like, well, what color could I wear? And it just seems like if I wore all white, that would be, <laughs> that'd be very strange. Um, maybe, maybe all yellow. I should wear, I should wear all white. That would, that would complete the time crystal that we're const- constellating Ex- together. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. That's what I'm saying. So can you imagine, what did you wear? Like one, like a, like a white workman's overall kind of thing every day? Or um, like the, like what Devo wears in concert? Uh, you know, I the band know. Devo? I can't remember. Just like a white, ju- like a white jumpsuit. Right, right. Yeah. So, so it looked like I'm from the future. <laughs> exactly. So I had to live through a period of, of, uh, I, this is how Jesus, you know, when Jesus goes back to Nazareth, and people are like, that's the Messiah. That's Jesus. That's, that's Joseph's son. That, that's not the Messiah. And then Jesus says, a prophet he, is. He, he, built, he built this table. Yeah, I know. And he says, a prophet is never welcome in his home. <laughs> Basically, it's like, <laughs> if you want to reinvent yourself, you got to move <laughs> at some point. Or you have to live with the long period where people are going to go, who the fuck do you think you are? <laughs> <laughs> you know? Which some people can just kind of bring it off some people have and it's a weird talent so weird charisma i've never understood how this works but some people can just kind of make people accept whatever affectation well, they have decided to incorporate into their lives yeah well it works like, for me i don't know if i'm that type of person but it worked and now like even my mother buys me black socks for christmas um and it, it's not like a thing either it's just I'm gonna it's just buy you I'm going to buy you a batik shirt and I'm going to act super hurt if you don't wear it. Okay. I'll wear it. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to drive a wedge into your, into your black clad lifestyle. Yeah. Because I'm a chaos agent. 
so I, I all, all this to say is when I read that bit of Ligotti, ultimately Ligotti, what he's doing is basically just he's being his usual Aristotelian nihilist self and basically putting every accident down, every every affectation down to a, 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 a sorry attempt on the part of inanimate objects to pretend that they're animate, you know? Um, so he 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 goes there and that's what makes reading Ligotti such a such a pleasure for me because it's to me there's this form of humor in there it's a kind of like um but um i think that affectations i mean you know i mean you have to be the first judge you have to know whether this is for real or whether this is some kind of um kind of cheap wish fulfillment like wearing the fedora you know like we've seen that that can fail it doesn't it won't necessarily oh, work indeed it can <laughs> yeah there's but a you risk know, involved I... I have a stingy brim fedora and I once had a conversation and I, I, it has a definite role to play in my hat lineup. Yeah. It is by no means the most embarrassing hat I own and wear. Um, I have a Vietnamese pith hat that I wear when it gets super fucking hot here in the summer and it looks exactly as stupid as you would think it would and i don't care because it is by far the most comfortable thing you can wear and that's in that, an that's Indiana a purely summer. utilitarian thing it's not an affectation although some people yeah. might perceive it as an affectation uh it would be hard not to i think it's such a funny looking thing but right. i'm gonna leave that off to one side um the uh actually what was i just saying where was i going with the pith hat uh you yeah, have, you have a fedora Oh, I do have a fedora. Yes, that's right. And my son, who is highly critical of young men wearing fedoras, basically his feeling is that it is always wrong, categorically wrong for a young man to wear a fedora. I asked him if my fedora was bothering him and he was like, oh no, it suits you. It's, it's good. Nobody would question a fedora. And uh, we got in a conversation about this and he was like, you know, you have to be, uh, you have to be old to wear a yeah. fedora like there are some affectations that you have to age into if i started smoking a pipe which i wouldn't because i don't enjoy smoke like the taste of combustion is gross to me um but if i uh if i suddenly started sporting a pipe i don't think anybody would be surprised no i think it would you've earned go that right with my gen yes exactly yeah. it would go with my advanced stage of life yeah um Okay, I, t I took a, a, a course. It was a great class in Gnosticism when I was at the University of Ottawa. It was taught by a young guy who was basically a PhD student, I think, who got to teach this course. And it was a seminar. It was great. Um, but he uh, <laughs> he was Quebecois, and he, he had this he had the fedora and the pipe and everything. And um, he was about 20 years away from that working. <laughs> I yeah. hope he stuck with it, because now it would be great. <laughs> <laughs> but at the time it did not uh i don't know didn't you know but at the same time i think that people if i'm if you are listening to the sound of my voice dear listeners i want you to know if there is some affectation that you've been toying with in the back of your mind something that you just think it's cool you don't need it but you just think it's cool. Maybe you've never had a tattoo in your life and you've always thought tattoos were dumb, but you just got an idea for a tattoo and you're asking yourself, but who am I to get a tattoo? Am I the right kind of, am I a tattoo person? Or maybe tattooing is a little bit, is setting the bar a little high. So maybe we can it's say pretty, just pretty mainstream now though. 
I'll go to the wave pool with the girls and like every every uh normie has a tattoo these days. <laughs> no, it's very true, but yeah. you can take a hat off, right? Yeah, yeah. Tattoos you can't take it off. So That's right. More. It's true. Right. That's true. So even if it's uh further down on the scale, uh you're just thinking of the purchase of a a hat that would make people say that's not that's that's not the Phil Ford that I know or whatever. Probably your name isn't Phil Ford. Um, <laughs> I encourage you to get the tattoo. I encourage you to get the hat and figure out how to make it work. Because I think what's more important than the hat or the pipe or the goatee is the principle of the thing. And the yeah. principle of the thing is defeating that little voice that says, you're not the kind of person exactly for whom that thing exists. Because I feel that that thought, which at least in the United States, it feels like it is the eternal hangover of high school thinking, of a very limited way of understanding the self that is developed in high school. I feel like that that style of thought, that little gremlin that's loose in our minds does untold damage and prevents us from realizing our true potentialities. Mm -hmm. I am tonight supposed to deliver a Dharma talk, right? Because I am a junior trainee Zen teacher. They make me wear a little paper hat. It's very degrading. <laughs> Speaking of affectation. <laughs> that would be that'd be funny actually yeah. if i if i uh showed up for the zen group meeting tonight wearing a fast food uniform that i bought from right. like a thrift shop or something and it's a hair net a beard net yeah no <laughs> yes no comment just wear it i'm like it's my look uh no but one thing that i think fucks with the heads of lots of people who become Buddhists who start sitting and finding in sitting zazen meditation, uh, a kind, what I did, which is a principle of freedom of liberation, uh, that had otherwise eluded me throughout my entire life. Like this can be something that can bring immeasurable riches to your life. But I know that there's a lot of people who are just going to stop and say like, yeah, but who am I to sit zazen who am i to be to to think of myself as a meditator to think of myself as a buddhist to think of myself even as a spiritual person what kind of asshole would i be if i thought i could sit zazen and there are a number of sort of quasi plausible quasi rationalizations for this i think much of the time the concept of cultural appropriation is really just a rationalization of for telling people to stay in their lane, never to add anything to the inventory of cultural objects with which they are already familiar and comfortable. Yeah, um, definitely has a homogenizing effect. Absolutely. And, you know, I know people who are like, oh, that's, you know, if I'm talking about Zen, they might find it interesting. And then their conscience will come up with some bullshit story like, oh, but that would be cultural appropriation. Or, oh, then I would be like one of those assholes who fill in the blank. Whatever story you have that you're telling yourself, basically it always comes down to who do you think you are to do X. And it doesn't have to be anything even as big as, you know, like participating in. No, uh, we started with the bow tie here. 
In fact, it, I would say be, that we kind of have to justify could be the how you jump from the bow tie to Zazen. You kind of have to justify uh, that. Because, because it's the same, because honestly, you're wearing a bow tie, who are you hurting? Whose fucking business is it if you're wearing a bow tie or if you're wearing a straight tie? <laughs> exactly. Like, honestly, what fucking difference does it make? And yet, you know, there are many workplaces where if you showed up wearing a bow tie or wearing anything that violates the little, uh, the container that people have decided to put you in, that that's all they're going to fucking talk about for weeks. Oh my God. Did he see him with that bow tie? He looked like such an asshole. And the same and that's fucking crabs in a barrel man that's like that's how they get you that is how just living in human society <laughs> there's this hydrostatic principle everybody gets dragged down to the same level yeah. and if you and 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 it and and look around you ladies and gentlemen look around to the left and the right if you look at the general human level you should not want to have anything to do with that you should want to do better than the general human level. But one of the ways that they get you, one of the ways that the crabs keep pulling you back into the barrel, one of the ways that you manage to never do anything in your life that isn't something that has already been approved by your so-called friends is that little bit of mental script. Who do you think you are to wear that bow tie? No, I, it I, all starts with the bow tie, man. I accept that, except I also see Ligotti's point, which is that pick any corporate media you want, you will find the guy with the bow tie. And I, I don't want to pick on bow ties. It's just an example. But the point is that one can, you know, this is Byung-Chul Han's critique of authenticity, which I think is also valid, right? So it, there's a, a tightrope to walk, to walk there. Because one can try to, you know, you can say, well, who am I to do that? But the that might be something that completely slots into the structure of homogenizing conformity as well. Like, and then you, um, you adopt that and then you get a sense that you're different, whereas in fact, you're just doing the same old thing. You're not actually individuating in a sense that, so I think there's just always like, it's. Yeah, that's, that's, that's true. Yeah. We all so, know somebody like that. So if you, exactly. And that's what, that's what he's talking about. So it's not like, it's not enough. And this is something you've said about Zazen. It's not in, enough to um, opt for the affectation. There needs to be, uh, I think you're right. There needs to be a truly like, because there's the one little voice inside that'll say, you're not good enough because you're not like Tracy. Tracy's good enough. <laughs> and then you're like, well, you know what? I'm just as good as Tracy. And of course, Tracy is is the one who fits right into the pocket of of um uh, of whatever culture it is that you want to be noticed by, you know. And then you're just, you know, like there's there's a you yeah. can fool yourself with this sort of game. So ultimately, I think that there's a negotiation to be had. It's like I've always resisted Byung-Chul Han's critique of authenticity, and he critiques Charles Taylor. Charles Taylor really has a strong ethos of authenticity as, as part of what modernity inheres in. And, um, and I do think that Taylor, I take Han's critique. It's that ultimately what you want 
is you don't want all this pressure to have to be singular and unique. That in itself is a form of conformity, according to, Chan, to Han. The, the, the need to be authentic, to be singular, to be yourself, to follow your voice, to follow that one little singular spark in you that's only yours is to him the algorithm of late capitalist civilization. So at the same time, but I, the, where I resist Han is in, well, no, that's how, that's the demonic parody of something real within the capitalist yeah, civilization. Yeah. That's offering you a substitute for real individuation. So it's like, there's something in between Taylor and, uh, and Han that I think, well, again, Jung, I think kind of nails it. Although you have to read reams of books where he's trying to figure out what the hell he's saying in order to get to it. But where I ended up with Jung, at least, was this exactly this strange in-between where it's no, it's no longer about simply finding the affectations that make you stand out, that give you the appearance of, of singularity, but rather trying to find something in you that is completely other, um, that is not you at all, a you that is... A, that is something you have to discover and it's it you can't capture it you can't contain it in a, a bow tie or a color of clothing or even a, a zen practice it's something truly unprecedented and therefore uh unrepresented anywhere okay but then what that formulation gets close to is the idea of it being not only unrepresented but unrepresentable if it's so sort of like incommensurate with all formalized kinds of knowing, then uh, how do you even find your way to it? And I have to say, this is, I think this is where the bow tie comes in. Um, I think that there is some kind of authentic authenticity, some what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. uh, but I also think that... <laughs> at least in my experience or the way I view the world is basically impossible that you're just going to stumble on that by accident. Like it's a project of finding that. And if you're going to find it, you got to start with something. You got to start somewhere. You yeah. got to start throwing stuff at a wall to see what'll stick. Yeah. You got to wear the bow tie is yeah. what I'm saying. I agree. I agree. I mean, actually the element of time is important, like time and development, or, or, or I might even say practice. Like, okay, so I'm sticking close to uh, the Zen example, partly because I have to come up with the Dharma talk and, and I'm thinking about this. Um, like, there's this concept that I've mentioned a number of times on the show, the arousing of the Bodhi mind, the idea that like somehow you have to get the idea that you should practice Zazen before you even sit down for the first time. Like somehow you have to have that motivation. And that motivation will almost certainly be at least partly bullshit. Now people start, I mean, if you start any kind of like serious practice, let's leave Zen off to one side. Let's say it's a practice of a musical instrument or you're starting a degree at a university. You can't know where your education is going to lead you. Exactly. There is no informed consent to education. There's no informed consent to practice. Um, this is a problem in our technique 
oriented society where informed consent in the sense of having an entire process mapped out in advance and controlled in advance seems to be the gold standard of like how we run things. Um, but education doesn't and can't work like that. You have to, in order for it to do its stuff, you have to be open to unexpected influences, things that might open you up. The 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 magic open sesame words. The process changes you, so you're not the same yeah. person at the end as you were at the beginning. So precisely. Yeah. So you you there's no informed consent. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So when you sit down, the first time to sit zazen. You can't know what the full meaning of that action is. And you won't know. Possibly ever, but I mean, you might form a halfway decent understanding, but that won't be for a long time, right? But in the meantime, what matters is getting your ass on the cushion, keeping going. Yeah. And so, you know, this is a thing in Zen, which is just like the idea that people in the West people in the, it seems to me, especially Anglo-American world, um, this guilty, obsessive, uh, self-surveilling condition where we are constantly asking if we are doing things for the right reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, Saying the in right Zen, things. We, yeah, in Zen, we just push that off to one side and say, like, I kind of don't care. Just keep sitting. Yeah. You know? And people will sit for dumb reasons at the beginning. Like I was really stressed out. And like many people, I had the thought, oh, I've heard that meditation is good for stress. You know, this is about 15 years ago. I heard meditation is good for stress. I'm going to learn to meditate. And in short order, that thought went away and was replaced by other equally or even more delusional thoughts. Mm -hmm. Right. But the thing is that if you're, keep on sitting regardless of what bullshit motivation you might have for sitting as you keep sitting you're going to wear your way through all of those bullshit ideas the the delusions will start to burn away and at a certain point you're going to be left with something that has kind of boiled down to a harder more durable core something a little bit more meaningful you start You know, I mean, this is what I was talking about on that episode we did on Osho, the unflushable turd of Dharma, as I termed it. Um, The the fact that it's a practice that just doesn't go away. And because it doesn't go away and you keep trying day after day, you can end up somewhere unrecognizably different from the bullshit place that you started with. But the fact is in some sense, when you take a big step back and look at the whole process and how it played out, you have to acknowledge that the bullshit idea was essential. That that bullshit self-serving egoistic idea was doing the Lord's work. Yeah. You in fact were acting as an enlightened being by thinking that you wanted to sit Zazen because you just think Japanese things are really cool. Let's, I mean, let's say worst case scenario, let's say it is cultural appropriation that you think Japanese stuff is cool and you want people to think you're cool because you're down with the Japanese stuff. So, I mean, like, yeah, it's a problem 
on its own. But if you are putting yourself in the way of transcending that view and coming to a deeper, wider, more ethical, more understanding, more human view, sorry, evil be thou my good. In between uh, spiritual practice and uh, wearing a bow tie or black clothes, there is a zone there, right? So if we want to, let's, let's call wearing a bow tie or wearing black clothing um, hile, flesh, meat, materiality. Okay. And right. let's call, let's call uh, the, or hile, I'm not sure how to pronounce that Greek word. Let's call the Zen practice pneuma, pure spirit. In between, okay. you have psuche, which is soul, and this is this is this uh, finding authenticity in the realm of soul is what I've been thinking about recently. In my my latest man crush is on Clive Barker, which will whom we'll be discussing next week in an episode we recorded with Connor Habib on Hellraiser. I've been reading a lot of Clive Barker and also reading a lot about Clive Barker. One of the things that you know, prompted me to look deeper into Clive Barker's mind as an author is the fact that he writes in longhand, which I admire and envy. Uh, in fact, I'm doing it. I'm I, I'm I'm writing longhand, like actually what writing a, in long, longhand. Such an affectation. Yeah, totally. I'm collecting fountain pens. Who are you to collect yeah. fountain pens? You <laughs> fucking asshole. I have to go pick up a new bottle of Japanese ink today because I love Japanese pens. <laughs> um. So. Uh, so. The realm of soul is where Clive Barker gives us, I think, a model of authenticity, where um, there's a documentary about him that I watched on YouTube, where they start with his childhood and his parents. I mean, he comes from a Catholic family in Liverpool. His father and mother have no clue where he got his crazy ideas. Um they don't approve of it. It seems like they're very, like he came, he comes from a very conservative background, but from a young age, his mind was beset by images of horror, things that would get mm. you in trouble if you were to share them openly, visions of nightmares. And instead of doing what I think most people um, besieged by such images would do, he decided to somehow, he so, somehow decided to have the courage to just live them through to draw them to write them to he made plays with his he he mounted a he staged salome for his sixth grade class and made a <laughs> uh an amazing head severed head with a bunch of like from what i understood a bunch of like um like animal organs in it or whatever, like meat. Oh, and suddenly when he, when he lifted the head, it just, the stuff just fell on the stage and people were freaking oh. out. He, and he just, for some reason, he was able to, not just that, I mean, he's, he was gay and he had to, 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 to make that transition. That's always a great path to authenticity. I think in men to have to deal with something that, um, that radical. Um, and, uh, and he, and he turned it into, he made it his practice. Like he is an author who practices writing. He writes every day. He's always working on something and it's simply his practice. And, um, his practice is never to, not to choose what idea he pursues. He lets the ideas come up a bit like David Lynch, you know? Um, and he, he practices it. And what he gives us is a map of the soul, of the realms of, of areas, regions in the realm of soul that were uncharted before he did what he did. And so 
can you what would Han say? Would he say, well, yeah, he's he's a he's a horror writer. He's he's filling a niche in the market. He's providing us with nightmarish uh, stories to, you know, for whatever. I don't think I suspect that Han's not a reader of Clive Barker, but I may be mistaken. Um, but to me, he is. Yeah, he he fits in the system. Uh, and yet somehow he constantly escapes it. Um, if only because, as he says in an interview, he says, I've lived my entire life in my imagination. That's where I live. And uh, I can relate to that. <laughs> and I found it uh, validating to hear him say it um, so shamelessly, so almost proudly. And um, so there is, there is the authentic authenticity and inauthenticity are at odds and sometimes almost indiscernible at every level. At the level of Hile, what what's the what's the real reason you're wearing that bow tie? At the level of 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 Pneuma, you know, are you in it for the right reasons? And of course, Zen is a machine designed to take you out of that. It's like you have to start with the worst reason possible. That's part of the point. So Zen is a special <laughs> technology, and not we can't use it as an example of everything else because it's precisely designed to do that, yeah, true. what you were doing. And true. yet, and um, I would say though, that all spiritual practices, practice in the spirit of Zen, do will do that for you, you know? But you need that, you need somehow to get that spirit. And then there's the realm of the imagination. And um, that's the realm that's under siege today. That's the realm that's being colonized. I heard a Jay-Z single generated by AI. Have you heard about this? The Jay-Z song sounds pretty authentic. It doesn't sound like they're his best, I mean, I'm not a Jay-Z fan, but it sounds like fairly typical rap, but it was generated by an AI. So culture is already being taken from us by these machines, by these new uh, technologies. And so it is time to reclaim the imagination and to, to yep. look for authenticity in the realm of suke and the anima mundi, you know, and the, um, the mundus imaginalis. We need to go there. And that's, I think I see that as part of our job here on Weird Studies is to open pathways into the imaginal for people so that they can find uh, an imagination that isn't imagineering, that isn't already co-opted yeah. by Disney and company, right? Yep. But to do that, you got to put on the bow tie. <laughs>